Good afternoon. So good to see so many of you today. If you have your Bibles, please get ready to turn to 2 Timothy chapter 1. Such a joy to gather with you every Sunday. Amen. Amen. In a Nine Marks article by Pastor Sam Amadi, titled Don't Do Weird Stuff, he writes, and I quote, churches do lots of weird things. Some of that weirdness is a bit outlandish. A few years ago, a pastor in eastern Kentucky decided that traditional baptismal waters were a little too tame for his taste, so he started dunking new converts in pools of beer. At another church, a preacher instructs his congregation to take off their socks and wave them over their heads while improvising a song about how Jesus is spinning them around and around and around. And here's a few of my own additions of weird things churches do that I recently discovered. Recently, a well-known prosperity gospel church from North Carolina is hosting a pop-up church in D.C. And last week for the Super Bowl Sunday, another church, uh, the pastors of the church dressed like the opposing teams and kicked a Bible across the stage for a field goal. It went viral on social media. Brother Sam Amadi continues, of course, most pastors and churches are sensible enough to avoid such ostentatious displays of weirdness, but there are plenty of well-intentioned, respectable weirdness to go around. And he continues, we've abandoned congregational singing for stage performers. We claim to be a people of the cross, but design our services around triumphalism, prosperity, and unbroken jolliness. We crave worship that serves up sentimentality, rather than our need to repent and believe the gospel. Most evangelical churches in America still have at their core the profound and simple elements of worship modeled by the early church, according to Acts 2.42, which says, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Yet, in many churches, these simple acts of worship have been encrusted over by years of accumulated traditions that mask the beautiful, simplicity of the ordinary means of grace. Close quote. Brothers and sisters, the sad reality is that in many churches today and even all around us in our very county, Montgomery County, the beautiful simplicity of the gospel is not only masked, it is either seriously distorted or completely deserted altogether. In so-called Christian churches, there is no clarity nor centrality on what the gospel is, who its gospel people are, how gospel people ought to live together. So the question for us, why have churches strayed in such ways? Why have churches strayed so far from the message we are supposed to proclaim and the distinct witness we are to display to the world around us? In our passage this afternoon, the Apostle Paul continues to exhort his disciple Timothy to be unashamed in suffering for the gospel and to follow the pattern of sound teaching in order that he may not stray, in order that he may continue in the ministry of the heritage of sincere faith which dwells in Timothy, granted to him by the grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. We're continuing our study through 2 Timothy in our series titled Faithful to the End. And my prayer as we study this soul-searching epistle is that we will be challenged to be unashamed to suffer for the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ and Savior. Amen? 
Beloved, as a follower of Christ, what does suffering for the gospel look like for you? 2 Timothy reminds us that Christian ministry is suffering, that the Christian life is suffering. Yet we know for Christians, don't we, that suffering is not the end. We know the one who suffered for our sake and abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. That's why for us in him, even in the most seemingly darkest and bleakest circumstances of life, we have unshakable hope and we have a good news to proclaim. Amen? Brothers and sisters, the hardships and the challenges and the trials the difficult news of loved ones, conflict with neighbors and friends and family members, the ups and downs of life and sorrows and pain and anxiety and depression in this life are not unusual. They are normal in this sinful, fallen, broken world. But again, we know that the bad news is not the final word in Christ. The good news of the gospel is. Hallelujah. So how are you trusting in the sovereign one in your suffering? How are you trusting in the sovereign one in your suffering? Our passage this afternoon continues Paul's instructions to Timothy, writing from a cold, dark, and terrible prison. Paul is imprisoned in chains as a criminal, awaiting execution for preaching the gospel. And he is caught up in a massive persecution ploy by the emperor Nero to wipe off Christianity off the face of the known world. And so Paul writes a heartfelt letter to Timothy in his final letter, exhorting and encouraging Timothy not to shrink back in fear and suffering, but rather remembering the source and heritage of his sincere faith and to remember the power of the gift and the gospel and the guarantee to fan his gift of his pastoral calling into flame, to not be ashamed, but to share in the suffering of the gospel and to remember that it is God who will guard until that final day what has been entrusted to him. And Paul calls Timothy now to hold fast to the gospel, and to guard it. And in our passage, again, Paul exhorts and encourages and gives an example to Timothy. And since from last Sunday's message from 2 Timothy verses 6 through 12, Paul exhorted and encouraged Timothy why Christians should be unashamed of the gospel in the face of fear and suffering. In our passage, Paul exhorts and encourages Timothy how Christians can suffer for the gospel by holding fast and guarding the gospel. So from 2 Timothy chapter 1 verses 13 through 18, I want to share with you two instructions on how Christians should suffer for the gospel and not be ashamed of it. Here's the outline so you know what's ahead. In question form, how should Christians suffer for the gospel and not be ashamed of it? Point number one, follow the pattern of sound doctrine from verses 13 and 14. And point number two, follow the example of sacrificial faith from verses 15 through 18. Follow the pattern of sound doctrine and follow the example of sacrificial faith. Brothers and sisters, I prayed for you through the preparation of this message that the Holy Spirit will convict you to follow in the footsteps of the faithful ones who have gone before us in our life and doctrine. I pray that you are reminded again to rightly suffer for the gospel and experience afresh the power of the gospel as you heed Paul's words of exhortation, encouragement, an example. Guests and visitors, welcome. Thank you so much for joining us today for our Sunday a weekly gathering. If you do not consider yourself a Christian, we especially welcome you today. Thank you so much for joining us. We've been praying for you. If you are here and you do not consider yourself to be someone who has faith, 
perhaps someone who lacks faith in God, or even someone who really don't understand what the Christian faith is. The Bible says faith comes by hearing and hearing by the words of Christ. So we pray this afternoon that you would hear God's life-giving words today. We pray that you would hear his word to find forgiveness for your sins, to find meaning and purpose for your life, and true and unshakable hope in Jesus Christ today. So without further ado, let's turn to his word found on page 995 of the Blue Bibles around you. And as you turn there, I want to ask you to please keep your Bibles open and reference it often so that you know that this is God's word for you to remind you of your need of him and to grow you in love, knowledge, and trust of him. May the Lord grant us ears to hear and eyes to see his truth through his word. Second Timothy chapter 1 verses 13 through 18 says this. Follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. You are aware that all who are in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Philegius and Hermogenes. May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. But when he arrived in Rome, he searched for me earnestly and found me. May the Lord grant him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. And you well know all the service he rendered at Ephesus. How should Christians suffer for the gospel and not be ashamed of it? Point number one, follow the pattern of sound doctrine from verses 13 through 14. Look with me to verse 13 again. It says this, follow the pattern of the sound words that you heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Having finished the long and complex sentence of verses 8 through 12, challenging timid Timothy to not be ashamed of the testimony of Christ nor of his chains, Paul makes his point with a second imperative in the letter. Follow the pattern of the sound words. The original word means to connote keep the pattern of sound teaching or hold fast to the matters of supreme importance. It entails this idea of committing oneself to it entirely. What Paul is exhorting Timothy in is this. If you don't want to stray from the gospel, then suffer for the gospel by following it, by keeping it, by holding fast to it, to the pattern of sound teaching or the healthy words of the gospel. Paul says, fall in line with the pattern of the sound doctrine of faith, which has been passed down from past generations of faithful believers. Of course, by sound words, Paul doesn't mean some arbitrary selection of unrelated facts or irrelevant religious history. No, Paul means the truths of the soul-saving and life-transforming body of doctrine, the gospel of Jesus Christ. As Paul says it elsewhere in Romans 6.17, but thank God, although you used to be slaves of sin, you obeyed from the heart that pattern of teaching to which were handed over to you. That's why, as Pastor Mark Dever says, what's most important about our church and churches around the world are the things we share in common with all other true churches. What's most important about any church is not the unique or innovative or creative things about a church at all, not the impressive things about a church. The main attraction of a church should not be how good the music team is or how nice the building is or how good the preaching is, how cool the people are, or even how nice and accepting its members are. Simply, Paul is cautioning, 
Be wary of churches whose aim and claim to keep you coming to entertain you with a fresh word or a new song or brand new program. No. Paul says faithful churches and faithful Christians should be about holding fast to the pattern of sound doctrine, the gospel that tells of the God who saves sinners through Christ. Well, brothers and sisters, what then is the gospel? What is the good news of Jesus Christ? It's the best news you and I or anyone will ever hear. The gospel is summarized in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 9 through 10, which says this. It is the power of God who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our own works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages begin, and which now has been made manifest, made known through the appearing, through the coming, the first coming of our Savior Jesus Christ, who abolished death on the cross and brought life through his resurrection and immortality to light through this word proclaimed. It's the only message of forgiveness and salvation for sinners like you and me, brothers and sisters, friends and guests. Through the sinless life and the substitute death and the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So if there is anyone here who does not know themselves to be a Christian or you are not sure that you are, will you repent? That means to turn from your sins. Stop trusting in the things of this world or of yourselves. Turn from your sins. Repent. And will you believe that Jesus Christ died and rose again for you, for your sins, for your soul? And will you trust him today with everything? It doesn't matter what's going on. Trust him today and tomorrow and the next day and forevermore. And we would be so happy to pray with you and to encourage you along the way to run the race and fight the good fight with you. If you want to know more about how you can follow Jesus Christ, please talk to any of the pastors at the close of service at the doors or if somebody is smiling next to you, that means they really want to talk to you and share with you how awesome and amazing Jesus Christ is. Amen? Brothers and sisters in Christ, the test of whether a church or a Christian is true and genuine or not is whether a church or a Christian is clear on first and foremost, what it believes. Is the word of God central or not? Is sound theology something that is taught and emphasized or not? Is the gospel, the fuel, the bond, and the overflow of that church or that Christian or not? Does the church or the Christian hold firmly to the common salvation and contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints according to Jude or not? Or do they hold it loosely, carelessly, or adjust according to the changing times or trends of the culture? Does a church hold to inerrancy of the Bible? Does the church clearly define what the Bible says, what a Christian is, and what a true church is? Does a church declare as its central message the full and clear gospel of Jesus Christ that you just heard? Is the diamond of this very gospel held up for it to shine brightly, through the right rungs of ecclesiology, the right governance and polity and structure of the church, led by qualified elders, served by qualified deacons, and supported by faithful covenanted members. Is the gospel that a church and a Christian says he or she believes clear and apparent when a church gathers together in worship through its singing, through praying, through reading, through preaching and hearing, and seeing through the Lord's Supper and through baptism of the Word of God? And when the church scatters, do they obey the scriptures in discipleship and in evangelism? But before you think, what Paul is belaboring is sheer recollection of information or head knowledge. In the last part of verse 13, Paul says this, doesn't he? 
in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. What Paul is saying is this. It's not sufficient merely to hold to the gospel. How we do it is just as significant. And Timothy must be sure that his ministry is characterized by faith. As one commentator says, rigid orthodoxy alone is insufficient, you see. Just as Timothy is called to suffer for the gospel, not by his own strength, but by the power of God, as according to verse 8, so also faith and love are not inherent qualities, but rather supernatural gifts given to those who are in Christ Jesus, our Lord and our Savior. So, dear beloved, both of these aspects are equally as important for us as Christians. Are you following, keeping, holding fast, committed to the pattern of sound words of faith? Do you know it? Do you love it? Do you share the good news of the gospel to others and apply it in your daily lives, especially through seasons of suffering and sorrow? Do you do this or not? And do you follow and keep and hold fast to it and commit to it in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus? So ask yourselves today, what does it mean to hold fast to sound doctrine in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus? What does that mean to you? I think it means simply you can't do it alone. You can't be a sound Christian, a sound theologian on your own. First of all, you can only be one in Christ Jesus. That's what the text says. But apart from your continual life of dependence, repentance, and humility on him and before him, You cannot be a sound theologian, a sound Christian. But also, you can't be one apart from the local church under the leadership of biblically qualified elders in covenant with faithful church membership. In the faith and love means you are within the bounds of what Christ prescribed for Christians to submit to. You can't be a sound Christian and be a lone ranger Christian. You can't be divisive and not be eager to maintain the unity You can't be a sound Christian and think you are right all the time or be arrogant. True Christians are humble. You can't be a sound Christian and beat people over the head with the Bible as a legalist. True Christians are forgiving and patient, slow to speak, and slow to anger. You can't be a sound Christian and not submit to biblical authority. True Christians believe in good biblical authority. You can't be a sound Christian and not be committed to a local church. You can't be a sound Christian without faith and love. You can't be a sound Christian and not be in the faith and in love that are in Christ Jesus. You are not suffering for the gospel if you are not following the pattern of sound doctrine, if you are not committed, if you are not holding fast in the faith and in love in Christ Jesus because faith and love are the fruits of a Christian union with Christ. If you are in Christ, Faith and love are its natural fruits. Amen? Dear beloved, when times of suffering comes, do you look to him in trust? Do you hold fast to sound doctrine in the faith and in love that is in Christ Jesus? Is perhaps the reason why you are struggling in your suffering and sorrows because you are not full of faith? You are not filled with love in Christ Jesus, but rather in your own thoughts, rather in your own strength, rather in your own flesh? How might the Lord be using your situation, your circumstance right now to cause you, to humble you, to hold fast to the pattern of sound faith in the faith and in love that are available to you in Christ Jesus? I encourage you, look to him, look to his word and trust the pattern. Hold fast, keep, be committed to the sound doctrine of God's word and the gospel. Amen.
The phrase at the end of verse 13, that you have heard from me, is an interesting one. It's an important lesson that we can't miss. I think it's the tension of this pericope, possibly the tension of this entire letter. Because the reason is this, Paul is imprisoned. He's about to be executed. According to a worldly perspective, Paul was as good as dead. Paul at this point was weak. Paul was powerless. He wasn't seen as respectable at this point. He was easily forgettable. And that's why many, as we will read, have already deserted, turned away from Paul. And even Timothy, Paul's own spiritual son, convert and disciple and pastor Timothy, was at the brink of turning from him, ashamed of the testimony of Christ and of Paul's chains. But Paul seems to continually identify, equate, tie together loyalty with the gospel, with loyalty with himself, and loyalty to the proclamation of the gospel. How can we understand this rightly and not dismiss it? In our age where our society is skeptical of authority, skeptical of submission and loyalty to leadership. In a day, we have a natural allergy against spiritual abuse and where we are heavily influenced by cancel culture all around. The fact that Paul alludes faithfulness to the gospel is heavily related to loyalty to Paul, as we'll talk about in verses 15 through 18, might rub some of us the wrong way, perhaps rightly so. But what Paul is teaching us And what the Bible is showing us, ultimately what God desires for us to know, is that the gospel is passed on from faithful men to fearful men, who in turn become men of faith. Amen? Let me repeat that again. Ultimately what God desires to know through this passage is that the gospel is passed on from faithful men to fearful men, who in turn become faithful men. Listen, not only is why the gospel is passed on important, Not only is how the gospel passed on important, through whom the gospel is passed on is also important. Romans 10, 14, and 15 says this, How then will they call on him whom they have not believed? How are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? How are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Brothers and sisters, you simply cannot receive the gospel if you can't trust the person who is delivering it. If the person passing it on is not faithful and not loving and trustworthy, then that gospel cannot be delivered, you see. Which is why the next verse, verse 14, is so important. Look with me there. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Paul had said just a few verses above in verse 12, This is why I suffer as I do. I am not ashamed, for I know who I have believed. And I'm convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Paul says, it is God who will guard to the end the gospel that has been entrusted to me. But Timothy, you also must guard the good deposit of the gospel entrusted to you. The imperative guard occurs five other times in the New Testament. So in Luke 12, 15, guard against greed. In 1 Timothy 6.20, guard against false doctrine. In 2 Timothy 4.15, guard against Alexander the coppersmith. In 2 Peter 3.17, guard against deception. In 1 John 5.21, guard against idols. Paul was exhorting Timothy, not only are you to hold fast to sound doctrine in faith and love, he was to guard the gospel and defend the gospel by protecting it from error, from heresy, from diluting it or distorting it or dismissing it entirely. And in order to guard the gospel, 
how that is done is to protect the what and the who of the gospel. The what and the who of the gospel. As we know, early churches, when we read the New Testament, early churches were not always a haven of security or harmony, but was plagued by constant threats of heresy, especially by false teachers and false teaching that led people astray. Well, not much has changed today, has it? Think about how many churches around us, brothers and sisters, claim to be Christian churches who preach an entirely different gospel, which is actually no gospel at all, according to Paul in Galatians. Even if an angel would come and preach to you another gospel, let it be, let it be condemned. Right? It is not the gospel. There is only one gospel that we sing about. So leaders, pastors, and preachers of the gospel and true Christians are tasked with guarding the clear message of the gospel. So brothers and sisters, this is why our church and other biblical churches are committed to the biblical principles of, one, expositional preaching, where the main preaching from this pulpit is through books of the Bible, verse by verse, in order to declare the whole counsel of God, where the point of the message is the point of the passage. This is why we are committed to historical Baptistic ecclesiology, which includes autonomy of the local church, believer's baptism, regenerate church membership, that only genuine born-again Christians make up the church. This is why we hold to reformed soteriology, the biblical belief that God is sovereign over salvation. It's not man's choice that we are saved at all. No, it's God's election. This is why we are committed to meaningful church membership and discipline as the best way Christians can grow in holiness and maintain the purity of God's church. This is why we believe in elder-led congregationalism, where biblically qualified and affirmed elders lead, teach, and equip its members for the work of the ministry. We believe in one unified assembly, that the church is the physical, in-person, regular gathering of its members. That's why pop-up church just sounds funny, because it's not what the church is. It's the people of God regularly gathering together under the word. This is why we are so committed to biblically-oriented public worship, where the focus of our corporate gathering is not me, myself, or I and our feelings, and we have, you know, Jesus is my boyfriend time with eyes closed and lights turned down and smoke machines. No, we sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs to one another out loud. It's okay if you're a bad singer, you just sing loud for the grace of God and the glory of God, for the edification of the brothers and sisters next to you. Amen? This is why we are committed to church-centered missions and evangelism where the purpose of missions and evangelism is through the planting of healthy local churches, whether it's in Montgomery County or across the country or around the world. We are committed to church-centered missions and evangelism. This is how we guard the good deposit of the gospel entrusted to us. Amen? Amen? Brothers and sisters, aren't you so thankful to have this great privilege to keep and guard the gospel through New Covenant Baptist Church so that the next generation can receive it also and pass it on? Beloved family, it said Christianity is always just one generation from losing the gospel. So how are you doing keeping and guarding the gospel in the faith and in love? How are you doing keeping and guarding the gospel in the faith and in love? Of course, the measure of your success will be based on whether you are a true believer or not. Because Paul says the way we guard the good deposit is by the Holy Spirit who dwells in you. Christian, if you are a Christian, the Holy Spirit which dwells in you will enable you to guard the gospel from error, to protect it, to keep it. This is why here at New Covenant we preach the gospel week after week 
Because both believers and non-believers need to hear the gospel to be reminded of it daily for our salvation. This is why you listening to the word through daily scripture reading and through preaching prayerfully and attentively is so important. I love it when you guys listen. Even though I might not be preaching that great, your eyes are sparkling, you're engaged, you're in tune, you're listening to the word of God, the voice of God through the preached word. I love that. Thank you so much. By faithfully hearing God's word preached, you are guarding the what of the gospel. By faithfully attending church and members meeting and voting in and out members for church membership, making sure that those who are voted in are indeed genuine believers as we exercise the keys of the kingdom, according to Matthew 16 and 18. By faithfully discipling one another in order to help one another follow Jesus. By faithfully and prayerfully sharing the gospel with those around you who do not know Jesus. You are, in fact, keeping and guarding the who of the gospel. It's how you suffer for the gospel. Hallelujah. That's point number one. Point number two. How should Christians suffer for the gospel and not be ashamed of it? Second and finally, only two points today. Hallelujah. Follow the example of sacrificial faith from verses 15 through 18. As you observe the structure of these next verses, you see that verse 15 starts with the phrase, you are aware, and ends with, you know well, in verse 18, don't you? In biblical writing, this grammatical tool is called an inclusio, where everything within the bookends of these phrases makes sense of the point of the verses, which is helpful again for us because in our day, we're not comfortable with calling people out by name for their sins. Paul is very intentional here. The point of these verses is to exhort, encourage, and to provide examples to Timothy in order that he will not be ashamed of the gospel and of Paul's suffering. Paul provides, first, two negative examples of those who are ashamed of the gospel and who turned away from Paul, who deserted Paul. And he provides one positive example of someone who was unashamed to suffer for the gospel and for Paul. So Paul's point isn't to tell Timothy something that he doesn't already know. In fact, it's something Timothy was very well aware. You are aware. The point, again, was to remind Timothy of the importance of acting on what he does know and of encouraging him to continue to do what he's already been doing. The point, again, simply is to encourage and to remind Timothy, keep going, keep doing what you are doing. Look at verse 15. You are well aware that all who are in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Pelagius and Hermogenes. Paul says, you are aware, you know this, that all who are in Asia turned away from me. Now, the phrase, all who are in Asia, are debatable. But simply, Paul, in very distraught, emotional state, is expressing that all the Christian believers that once supported Paul's gospel ministry in the Asian providence of Rome has turned away from him, from supporting him. Now, the phrase turned away is also controversial if you study this text. Does it mean that they all deserted the faith and left the faith, left Christianity altogether? Or were they just ashamed of relating with Paul because he is in chains? Among whom were Valegius and Hermogenes, who must have been trusted and known leaders of the believers of that group of Christians. Well, we can't be certain of what it means. But what is certain is that Paul in the Bible describes these deserters as Negative examples of faithful Christians. An example of what Timothy should not follow. Okay, that is certain. Don't follow the example of these guys. These are negative examples. Just think about it. I know we just pass it along because it's just a simple verse with very little description of who they were. But just think about that. Philegius 
and homogenous were so about themselves, their only concern was for themselves. They were so fearful. They were so ashamed of Paul that although they were once partners in the gospel, they turn away from him, and in rejecting him, they were rejecting the gospel. When the going got tough, what did they do? They got going. They left. They didn't stick around. They left. They turned away. They didn't defend Paul. They didn't help Paul. They didn't support Paul. They cut ties with Paul. Now again, nothing more is said of Philegius and Hermogenes in Scripture. We don't know if they ever repented or if they continued in gospel ministry somewhere else, but it's doubtful. In fact, it's so common that even in our churches today, unresolved relational conflicts is often the cause of people leaving the church never to return again, isn't it? This is why Christians should never leave a church to run away from a conflict, thinking that they will have a fresh start at another church. True Christians are called to the ministry of reconciliation. True Christians are to forgive because Christ forgave. True Christians are to overlook offenses because Christ has covered a multitude of sins. Dear beloved, I pray you will never be remembered here at NCBC or any other church to be one who abandoned a friend in need, especially one you know who is faithful in suffering for the gospel. As Christians, we are called to weep with those who weep and comfort those who are in any affliction. You are aware, brothers and sisters. You know this. You are aware. You know this. Don't be a philegious and a homogenous. Rather, look at verse 16 and 17. May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. But when he arrived in Rome, he searched for me earnestly and found me. May the Lord grant him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. And you well know all the services he rendered at Ephesus. You see in these verses, Paul wishes a double blessing of mercy for Onesiphorus, who served as a positive example of someone who was not ashamed of the gospel, who suffered for the gospel, who was not a deserter, but rather a refresher, an encourager. Paul says, for Onesiphorus often refreshed me, often refreshed me, and was not ashamed of my chains. Brothers and sisters, don't you love people like that in your life? People who encourage you? And their presence refreshes you? They pray for you? They remind you of God's truth? They know you enough to tell you the truth in love. They care about you. Don't you love people like that in your life? They are committed to you even when days are hard. Whew. The gift of refreshers in our lives. Amen? Verse 17 says, When he arrived in Rome, he searched for me earnestly and found me. Apparently, wherever Paul was stuck in prison was a place very difficult to find. But this brother, this faithful brother, Onesiphorus, was a loyal, faithful, loving friend. He knew the importance for the gospel's sake, for the ministry of the gospel to pass on. Paul was entrusted to, in the gospel ministry, Paul was to pass on that no matter what, I have to find Paul. And he did. Hallelujah. And Onesiphorus knew his purpose to be the encourager. God had called him to be an encourager, helper, and supporter of Paul. Dear beloved NCBC family, how might the Lord be calling you to be a refresher to a fellow believer who is in dire need. Right now, may the Lord put it in your mind and in your heart, someone you could pray for, someone you can encourage, someone you can be helpful to. And I want to encourage you, challenge you, resolve to be an encouragement to them this week. If you can't think of anybody, just look around. Just encourage these people right here. Amen? 
or come to talk to one of the elders, I could tell you some people that you could encourage. Talk to the deacons. We'll point you in the right direction. There's a bit of strange mystery in these verses as I, as I conclude. In Paul's wish to bless Onesiphorus with double mercy in verse 16 and 18, in verse 16, Paul says, May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus. And in verse 18, Paul desires Onesiphorus that God would grant him to find mercy on that final day of judgment. What does... Almost, almost done, almost done. What does this mean? Well, at the end of the, of the letter, when Paul writes his final greeting, he also mentions the household of Onesiphorus. So why not Onesiphorus himself? Again, we can't be certain. Theologians conjecture, perhaps it's because Onesiphorus is actually dead. He died. Perhaps the reason for his death was because he put his neck on the line for Paul, knowing how important Paul's gospel ministry was, and for him to be committed to encouraging and refreshing him so that the gospel can continue. While Paul says, all have deserted me at the end of the letter, Onesiphorus was the one brother, one faithful brother, one committed brother who was loyal to the end. Dear beloved members of NCBC, I think it's too general and broad of an application for me to challenge you from these verses and say, will you follow Jesus this way? That's too broad. That's too general. Because I'm guessing most of you won't deny it. If I say, will you follow Jesus this way, this loyally, this committed? You'll all say yes. But what if I ask you, will you be willing to be loyal to me as long as you see me fit as your pastor who labors faithfully in truth and in love? Will you partner with me for the gospel? Will you be willing to be loyal to the elders, the deacons, the members of this church to not be a member in the periphery, but a committed refresher, not as one ashamed of the testimony, but as one suffering together for the gospel? If not, why not? Paul exhorted Timothy to be unashamed of the gospel and to suffer for the gospel. Paul encouraged fearful Timothy to hold fast and guard the gospel. And Paul gave negative and positive examples of whom they should look like. Paul says, you know this very, very well. Interestingly, in Hebrews 13.23, which was written after 2 Timothy, it says, you should know that our brother Timothy has been released from prison. There's no doubt upon reading this second letter from Timothy, Paul's final letter, Timothy followed the pattern of sound teaching of Paul through his chains. History writes that ultimately Timothy was martyred for his faith, for preaching the gospel. Angry unbelievers beat him, dragged him through the street, and stoned him to death. Dear beloved NCBC, I pray for most of you that you will not face a martyr's death, but we can resolve together to follow the pattern of sound doctrine and follow the example of sacrificial faith. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you. We thank you for the hard truths and the comforting truths of your word. Father, it is true that oftentimes we so focus on the things of this world, on the comforts of this world, Father, on our own selves and our situations. But Father, as true Christians, you call us to participate in sharing in the suffering for the gospel so that the gospel may advance. Father, thank you for the privilege that we have together as members of this local body who are committed to sound theology and sound doctrine into teaching it, preaching it, and to displaying it through the witness of our church body. Father, embolden us, empower us, grow us for your glory and for the advancement of your gospel, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.